Hi, I'm Maria Ramper, and welcome to Engineering Reimagined, a podcast series exploring how, like engineers, people from all walks of life are reimagining the future and their leadership roles in it. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have witnessed how science, technology, engineering, research and industry have come together to innovate in ways we could never have imagined from turning gin production into the manufacture of hand sanitizer and using 3D printing techniques to create face shields at scale and pace for frontline workers, collaboration, diversity and innovation have been the essential ingredients to transform adversity into opportunity. The CSIRO, or CIRO as it is sometimes called, is Australia's National Science Research Agency It is a leading example of how, when great minds, diverse skills and real-life challenges merge, innovative solutions can result. The organisation is currently working with government, universities, industry and the community on a program to bolster Australia's COVID-19 recovery and build long-term resilience. This is just part of the CSIRO's purpose, to solve the greatest challenges using innovative science and technology collaborating on a missions program across six major focus areas. CIRO's Chief Executive, Dr Larry Marshall, is no stranger to innovation. With a PhD in physics, he is a scientist, technology innovator and business leader, having spent many years in Silicon Valley and now, luckily for Australia, back on his home turf. Oricon CEO Bill Cox is an engineer with over 30 years' experience in design and business, currently leading the firm of 5,500 people across 10 countries. In this episode, Bill and Larry discuss the importance of multi-sector collaboration and diversity to foster innovation and create real change in our society, or putting it another way, making science real. Let's listen to what they have to say. Larry, thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate that. You've obviously had a uh, an incredibly eminent career as a scientist. Just tell us a little bit about how you got into science and what really sparked your interest in taking on a career in science and uh, some of the things that have excited you about where it's led you. Yeah, Bill, it's a pleasure to be here. It was really my mum and dad. My mum was an accountant and she made me learn the 13 times tables very early and I couldn't see much point in that. So I went looking for a point and I found physics, which uses mathematics. But it was really my dad and he let me sit on his lap up late at night watching them go to the moon and walk on the moon. And he also let me pull things apart, vacuum cleaners, clocks, my grandfather's grandfather clock. And then he made me put them back together, which sometimes took a lot longer than pulling them apart did. And that just really got me interested in how things worked and in engineering. That's really interesting. And then to to think about the role that uh, the CSIRO played with the space program in the 60s and all of the history that's then flowed from that in terms of the radio telescope program. In terms of those projects uh, and all of the different innovation that has been developed into uh, research and ultimately into uh, into tangible things. What are you most proud about in terms of what the CSIRO has done, both in your time in leading the organisation, but through its history? <laughs> Do you want me to pick my favourite child? <laughs> That's pretty much it, yes. 
little tricky. You know, when we celebrated the 50-year anniversary of the moon landing and we sat on the dish and we, we reenacted it with the original recordings from CSIRO and NASA, that felt like coming full circle for me. But actually, uh, if I think back to why CSIRO was created back in 2016, it was created to go solve, in a sense, one of the first national missions, which was to eradicate prickly pear. And that mission got delivered in 1920. And on the 100-year anniversary of our first mission, I was really proud to announce Sorrow's 12 missions to deal with Australia's future challenges. And I think it's that approach kind of back to the future, but using the latest science and technology to really make science real for every single Australian to navigate us out of the crisis from COVID. And that in itself is a, uh, a, great, a great reflection on, on the organisation and the role that the CSIRO plays in what we are facing and when you look at some of the big issues that we've got obviously COVID-19 is uh, is there but we only think back 12 months ago to uh, when we we're in the, the thick of the, the bushfires and the drought and now we're confronting a, uh, a pretty uh, global recession. They're not small issues. How do you lead the organisation to, to focus on those big issues and then get people to actually grasp them and, and to come up with meaningful solutions. A few years ago, we turned our science to something we hadn't done before, and that was to try and use science and predictive analytics to try and map different scenarios for Australia's future. What are the few really big things that if we do them, will set the country up for um, much stronger success for the next 100 years? And that really was the genesis of the missions. We have to lead with our strengths as a country. So, for example, how do we grow our agri-exports business from sort of 60 billion to 100 billion? Is it even possible? And, and what problems would we need to solve to do it? Of course, drought is one of the big problems we have to solve to make that possible. We have to grow twice as much food with half as much water. And what's different about them, Cyrus' first mission back in 1920, we did it collaboratively, but we largely did it ourselves. These missions are very collaborative. It's not just us. It's embracing 39 great universities, many government departments, many partners in industry like yourself to actually deliver the real solution, not just the idea, not just the science, not just the invention, but a real solution to the problem. And we're not going to quit on those missions until we've actually delivered those solutions so that we can really grow our economy here. Because let's face it, first recession in 30 years is a heck of a wake-up call for us. Yes, it, uh, it sure is. You use the word mission. Tell me, in using that sort of language, does that help to motivate and focus um, teams, the partnerships that you put together to really get the job done? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really central. If, if we were a startup, I'd say market and market disruption. But CSIRO is filled with people who are there because they want to make Australia better, they want to make the world better, and that's very much your classic scientist. So a mission resonates far more strongly than a market, but the idea is the same. We're trying to figure out what's going to disrupt Australia's markets for industry, what's going to disrupt Australia's environment, um, and what's going to disrupt Australia's society. And a lot of those disruptions are science and technology-based, things like artificial intelligence and, and quantum computing, geopolitical 
and, and of course, then there's the pandemic, you know, biological. Mm-hmm. So our modeling flagged the possibility of a pandemic. And like a good startup, we invested in the things we thought we might need. Four years before the pandemic, we invested in a domestic manufacturing capability to scale up proteins for vaccines. And that meant we could take the microscopic quantities of, say, UQ's vaccine and scale it up to a level where it could be tested for efficacy. We're doing the same thing now with CSL as CSL tries to scale up both the UQ and the AstraZeneca vaccines. So that kind of prediction is really powerful if you get it right, because you can turn the the problem or the disruption into an opportunity for Australia to, to be a bit more unique. And that was why we were really on the front foot in being one of the first organisations in the world to successfully do the animal trial of the, one of the first vaccines and accelerate it into phase three clinical trials with humans. So, Larry, you've worked uh, on a number of startups over the course of your career, and you've also worked in uh, uh, some very large organisations. What's your view on the whole notion that uh, innovation really sits in the world of startups, but it's uh, it doesn't get the same sort of traction within large organisations? Where are you on that uh, debate, or uh, have you got a, uh, a different view on that one? Startups have the natural advantage that they don't have anything to lose, whereas big established companies have a lot to lose. And that's an unlevel playing field in in terms of risk and willingness to bet the company on a a really bold idea. So that's why startups can disrupt big companies. It is harder in a culture of a big company to do innovation. It certainly was hard. It's been a hard journey in Syro and we're still on a journey. We're not there yet, but we're headed in the right direction. I just want to go back to the missions because one of the things we've seen from industry around the missions is how many companies, particularly Australian companies who wouldn't normally lean in around innovation, have kind of jumped on some of the missions. One of them is the Navigating Climate Change mission. Um, The other one is the Transition to Zero Emissions mission. And for very practical reasons, companies have embraced the need to do this, but they don't quite know how or they don't quite know how to quantify their climate risk or how to mitigate it once they do quantify it. So I think that's helped us co-create some solutions together to really help industry. And and that's innovation at pace and at scale with very traditional big companies in Australia who wouldn't normally do that. So there's something in the missions approach that, that seems to help unlock innovation in big companies. And the other one is around the SME sector, and particularly in manufacturing, where SMEs get stuck. They don't have the money or they don't quite know how to innovate. And we've seen a number of sort of partnerships form between us, a small company and a larger company innovating together on something. And there's a lot of situations where a big company like BHP, for example, wants us to help us an SME grow into a manufacturer or supplier for them. And so the innovation gets done in the small company, BHP gets the benefit of the innovation, they don't have to change their internal culture and they get a supplier. And so it's a win-win-win kind of solution for an Australian company. The role of scientists and engineers is really coming into its own with the issues that we're confronting. How do you think we as a sector can do more to put ourselves forward 
as people who can help solve and get on top of some of these issues because uh, it's just so critical to saving literally millions of people into the future. Yeah, so I guess my headline would be we've got to make it real. And what I mean by that is you ask a simple question, how has climate change affected the frequency of bushfires or when will we have a vaccine? And I think that's the challenge for the public, for industry, for government. You know, scientists and engineers often speak a different language Mm -hmm. and the public and the government don't actually care about how interesting the science is. They just want to solve the problem. They just want Mm -hmm. to know the answer. And so a lot of what we've done the last few years is made sorrow a lot more clear about why we're here and, and what we're actually going to deliver. We're ecstatic when we actually solve a problem. I'll give you an example that kind of quantifies it. Cattle farmers have been blamed for causing climate change because in Australia, about 15% of our emissions comes from agriculture and about 10% of those come from the cattle industry. So we engage the cattle industry differently and ask them, can we work with you to come up with a solution that lowers your emissions but doesn't lower your profitability? We came up with a thing called Future Feed that it, it almost eliminates the um, greenhouse gas emissions from cattle and it slightly improves the speed at which you get a beast ready for market. So it certainly doesn't lower profitability. If anything, it increases profitability. And when science can do that, the seemingly impossible, a great environmental outcome and a better business outcome, all the politics, all the ideology goes out the window and it mm-hmm. just makes compelling business sense to adopt it. You touched on collaboration earlier on and certainly uh, collaboration with government, the private sector. Tell me about the keys for you and for the organisation in terms of successful collaboration. Australia is the, the lowest collaborating nation in the OECD as far as innovation goes and that, that's a real problem. COVID has done amazing good for boosting collaboration. I mean, just about every university in the country has worked on some aspect of dealing with the virus. And many, many industry partners have leaned in to repurpose factories. They've let our scientists on their factory floor to work with them to try and figure out how to make critical supplies that Australia can't get from overseas because of the pandemic. And if we could figure out how to bottle it and carry it into good times, I think we'd be much better off as a country. But I'll give you an example. This target of growing our agribusiness to $100 billion a year, one of the impediments with that is Australia loses a lot of agri-food exports to counterfeiting. So an Angus beefsteak is very valuable in other parts of the world, but it gets counterfeited by um, other countries and other companies and misrepresented and sold as Australian product. So... The only way to really solve that problem is to work closely with the people who produce the products, understand specifically what their challenge is, and then dig into the science of genetics, isotopes of water, to try and figure out a way without adding a a mark or a code or something that can be hacked to the product, but to actually use the product itself as the unique identifier. So it's DNA. And you'd be amazed what we've been able to do by much deeper collaboration with real businesses and universities with great technology and us, the National Science Agency, to really start to crack that problem. That's right. And that really resonates with me because of this the whole 
sort of focus on innovations that's so important, getting comfortable with that concept of failure and iteration and that's how you ultimately get to the clever solution and having that mindset and having a culture where that's okay is important. How do you work on culture within uh, Zyro to nurture that and make sure that, um, that people embrace it? Yeah, the culture is everything, isn't it? And it's ironic, but in science, scientists have become a little bit risk averse, which sounds strange because by definition, they're always doing something that's never been done before. And so the likelihood of failure is quite high. But globally, the system doesn't reward failure in science any more than it rewards failure in, in, mm-hmm. in innovation. So a big part of what we've done in the last five years is to really encourage people to try and do things that they don't think necessarily will be successful and to take away the penalties for that, at least in our organisation. It took us probably a good 18 months to get in the mindset to do that. But when we started, CSIRO scientists, well, everyone in CSIRO did a thing called effort logging, which is the digital equivalent of a time card. Mm -hmm. And that was so that we could measure how much time we spent on projects and doing things. We're an organisation that was focused on activity, billable Mm. hours almost. And we, we killed that very quickly in the first six months because obviously you don't want to measure activity, you want to measure outcomes. We really matured our systems for measuring delivery, measuring outcomes. It sounds silly, but th- these are simple changes, but gee, they changed the way we thought about our delivery of science. When you think about the situation that we're in now with COVID, do you think we've learnt and do you think we can capture those learnings for the future around operating in a different way and just having a go at things? Our whole culture in Australia hasn't been one historically that rewards failure. There's a bit of a stigma about it. It's probably, when I, when I first went to Silicon Valley to live in, in the late 80s, um, it was probably one of the starkest differences that I noticed was there was this sort of embracing of failure because, well, I, I did six startups, right? I was lucky enough to take to public but actually every single one of them failed, nearing bankruptcy or technically being bankrupt and then recovering, that actually was the catalyst for success. Don't learn that in Australia. You learn that failure is bad and to be avoided at all costs. And I think that's a fundamental change that we need to go through as a people. And COVID, on the one hand, we're doing much riskier things now to deal with COVID. On on the other hand, the penalty for failure in COVID is going to be pretty severe. There's no guidebook or rule book you can go to to tell you how to make a decision. So the only tool you've really got is tapping into other people who have different perspectives. So, example, in the first few weeks of the crisis, Australia, we were worried we're going to run out of surgical masks. So we got together, um, us, a group of unis and a group of manufacturers that we'd worked with for years to try and brainstorm how would you make a, a, a top quality surgical mask quickly, assuming you couldn't buy anything from overseas and you had to do it all from homegrown components. And it was amazing. We're doing research on the factory floor, trying to build it, failing, learning, iterating, and then trying again. And within just a matter of weeks, we figured out how to make a mask out of wool and, and some other products. Some of the aspects of that mask were better than some of the best surgical masks around. And both our customers, our manufacturing partners and customers and us, we sort of said, you know what, we need to do this going forward as almost business as usual because it's a lot more efficient, it's a lot quicker, and we both learn a lot more. How do you think that 
our sector can get a better voice to bring those things out and capture the imagination of the broader society. Yeah, it's funny. You know, on the one hand, I kind of like the Australian way of keep your powder dry until you've really done it and delivered it and then, you know, you celebrate it. We see a lot of the other in the world where people go out and claim that they've done everything and then turn out to be, be disappointing. But you're right. When we are successful, we, we do tend to be a bit shy um, and self-effacing about it. And I think we've got good reason to be a bit more on the front foot to celebrate our successes. We're globally in the top 10 for our science excellence. We're also one of the world's best places for, I think, innovation in agriculture, innovation in mining. There's some aspects of our health system where we're really really good. We tend to think that everyone else is better at this stuff. And it's a mistake because if we don't realize we're better, then we'll drag our feet and then other people will become better and it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. In a sector and industry where we know that we see a drain of talent, science and engineers who go off and do other things, when we actually need more of them, that's a real challenge and a real opportunity. We're very lucky in your uh, in your circumstance of having had such a, an eminent career overseas to then come back. And then that brings me to the issue of diversity and more, particularly you know, women, coming into the sector is something that we know we've got a huge challenge, but we've also seen it as a huge opportunity. How are you seeing diversity and diverse thinking help in terms of uh, innovation, collaboration and a achieving some of the outcomes that uh, that you've already talked about today? One of the reasons I wanted to come back was in my career as a scientist and then turning into a business person and a, and a, and a CEO, probably a lot like yours. Early on, people said, oh, you know, you're just a scientist. You don't know how to run a company or you're just an engineer. You don't know about business. And it's that sort of lack of inclusion that society does like to put you in a box if you're a scientist or an engineer or if you're a woman. Obviously, that needs to change because in a future dominated by ambiguity, that is innovation. People have got to break out of their boxes because it's the collaboration between different people that really drives innovation. And so in our strategy in CSIRO, diversity was the foundation of the innovation strategy. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a nice-to-have. It was actually the first step in the strategy. And it's really three elements of diversity, diversity of people and an inclusive leadership style, because it opens your people, your staff up to feel safe to tell you you got it wrong. And as a leader, we all know that it's far better for your own people to tell you you got something wrong rather than wait for the market to tell you with failure. Diversity of people and, and that inclusive leadership style helps you manage risk, helps you iterate, helps you avoid failing in the market where failure can often be fatal. And then the second aspect is diversity of perspectives, because given that you're trying to do something that's never been done before, the, the key insight that you need to navigate that high ambiguity environment you're in is invariably going to come from someone who's not like you. That diversity of perspectives and, and the ability to, to listen to those different perspectives and grab the one that helps you resolve the particular challenge you're dealing with and iterate again that really is the key to navigating innovation. And then the third one is diversity of thought. Technology has made it really easy to tap into the brain's trust of your people. And that is kind of the realization that you you don't have to invent everything yourself anymore. You can actually invent it collectively. And innovation used to be done like invention. You know, a, a brilliant inventor would invent something. But 
Innovation is too difficult today to do on your own. It's got to be a team sport. And I guess the final piece of that, in order for that to work, as a leader, you can't own that. The only thing you can really own is failure because then you can give the ownership of that success to the team. And if the team feel that they're genuinely going to own the success and you're genuinely going to own the failure, then their willingness to try things that may fail um, goes way up. There's some uh, pretty important insights uh, in what you've just shared uh, there, Larry, so, so thank you. Moving then to digital. We've all seen a huge acceleration of embedding digital into the way organisations have operated through the pandemic. But you and the organisation had been on this journey for a long time. How are you seeing the digital future play out? Are we embracing it at the pace that we need to? Or what do we need to do to change that? I think COVID has accelerated our digital journey dramatically and, and things that we thought were going to take five years, we seem to do in five or six months. And But I, I want to give you a, a, a slightly contrarian view on digital just for fun. So I think a lot of us are dazzled by digital and in a way that makes us forget our natural unfair advantage in our markets, in our businesses. And I was talking to the leader of a US Fortune 50 company a couple of years ago who had lost literally maybe $3 billion, not lost, but maybe wasted or could have done better with it in embracing digital. And they hired a team in Silicon Valley, almost 3,000 engineers, which if you know what Silicon Valley costs, that's a lot of money, to take them into the digital age. And the realization after it didn't work was that you can't do that. You can't assume digital is going to transform your business. What you actually have to do is transform your people because your people have an intimate knowledge of both your business and your market. They have that domain expertise that gives the digital context. Otherwise, you end up with a bunch of digital solutions that don't necessarily fit your customers, your culture, and your specific problems. And so in Syro, we really tried to blend the best of digital with the best of domain expertise because there's nothing like learning at the coalface. There's a fear that people have in society, and Syro is no different. We, we have people who thought, oh, AI and robots are going to take our jobs. And it wasn't until we'd been a couple of years into our digital transformation journey where the people who thought their jobs were going to be replaced had realized, no, we're using um, automation and, and data mining to kind of enable us to collect 10 times more data. And 10 times more data means you need to focus your energy not on gathering the data, but actually getting the insight from the data, which is far more valuable than the raw data. And so those people, we trained them up doing, frankly, more important work, higher value work. Just one last question, and I couldn't let you go without uh, asking this, is around the vaccine for the virus and uh, without declaring any trade secrets, what's your level of confidence in the work that's happening at the moment with all of the, the candidates? Are you feeling positive or otherwise about uh, about there being a, a successful vaccine in a, in a reasonable period of time? So I'm actually optimistic about a vaccine. The challenge, of course, once we have it, is how do we get it out to 24 or 25 million people in the most effective way? And in particular, how do we get it to the most vulnerable people first? Because obviously the whole world is, is searching for a vaccine. We're doing a lot of work with Australian manufacturers to figure out how to make some of the candidates here in Australia. 
when I say we, not just CSIRO, Department of Health, number of universities, number of industry partners, CSL, for example. So the challenge is going to be getting the world vaccinated because this, like climate change, this is a global pandemic. We haven't solved it until we've solved it for the whole world. And that's going to be harder, I think. Yeah, I absolutely uh, couldn't agree with you more, Larry. The best minds in the world, hopefully working on that right now. On behalf of Oricon, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and for sharing your insights and uh, look forward to um, our uh, ongoing collaboration with the CSIRO. And uh, it's a partnership that uh, has been in place for, for over 50 years. And uh, I'm always incredibly proud to, uh, to talk about the work that we uh, continue to do with your organisation and, uh, and hope that we can collaborate uh, for many, many decades into the future. Uh, great to be here, Bill. And, and we really value the partnership too, because you make it real. enjoyed those insights which I think can give us great confidence in the power of diversity and collaboration to create change. If you're enjoying Engineering Reimagined, tell your friends about it. Leave a review and follow us or subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.